everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, everyone. I just want to wish a good morning to those who are here in the room at Discovery, but also those of us who are joining online. You know, COVID took so much away from us and disoriented us in so many ways, but one of the gifts it gave our church is it kind of forced us into innovation to where we could now share our online service uh, around the world. And we have people who call Discovery home here in Colorado and people around the world who join us and feel part of this church family. So just before I begin, a shout out to Jonah. Jonah, who I've known since he was about four out in, in West in Las Vegas, and also to dear friends of many of ours, Rob and Beth, who would love to be here today and are unable to be here in person but can join us online. So I know uh, Zach has been sharing a lot about the importance of generosity at this church and just want to remind us that the ability to have these cameras and these incredible volunteers, Perry right here down front, who I'm going to embarrass by pointing out, and the hard work that they do allow us, your generosity and their volunteering allow us to share with those who would love to be here but can't. So just wanted to welcome welcome you there. Uh, let's get right into the message. I, I went to a Christian college and we had to sign a, a moral agreement. If we were going to be a student there, I'm going to gently make fun of some of that. So before I do, I just want to say I loved my college and I loved my college experience. That's my overall picture. But hey, here's something. Uh, one of the rules that you had to sign, there was to be no sexual relationship before you were married. Now, I'm not making fun of that rule. I agree with that rule. That was a very easy rule to sign. But what happens oftentimes in religious organizations, and honestly, particularly in the church, we, we are prone to this. We have a rule, and it's probably a good rule, but to stop us from breaking that rule, we build a second rule. If you picture like rules as a fence, the, the fence is sexual behavior outside of marriage. But so, well, well, let's not get close to that fence. Let's build a, a fence within the fence. And so there was also a rule, no kissing on campus. No kissing on campus. Uh, I was an RA, and so I had to write a ticket if I caught somebody kissing their girlfriend or boyfriend on campus. I know, terrible. Uh, that was the rule. But then we put a fence inside the kissing fence. There was to be no dancing. No dancing in our college. You were not allowed to dance. Uh, some of us danced on the inside. I'm doing that right now, for those of you taking notes. Now, here's where it got interesting. Those were the spoken rules. We knew those rules. Whether you agreed with them or not, you signed the agreement. That's how we're going to live by. No problem. But because there was to be no dancing, when DC Talk and Michael W. Smith came to town for a concert, the school administration, true story, the school administration removed all the posters for the concert. Now, the whole don't hang up a poster thing wasn't a written rule. We did not agree to that. It was one of those more insidious rules that can sneak into churches. It was an unspoken rule. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever been in some kind of faith community where there's these unspoken rules and everyone seems to know them but no one talks about them? Because it was an unspoken rule, the student team who had put up the posters for, incidentally, a Christian concert, the students were very confused. This isn't against the rules, so they called a meeting with the administrator. I'm not going to name this lady. She's a fine human being. But they sat down with her and they said, we don't understand. We want to go to this concert. We're just promoting it. You took them down. You didn't even ask us first, what's the problem? She said, well, I, I think you can understand, she said. 
since you can't dance at a concert, it's probably best that you don't attend one. Now, what do you think about that, church? What's your take on that? Going to, thanks, Carol. Going to a concert <laughs> might lead to dancing, and dancing might lead to sex, which affords me my all-time favorite Bible college joke. I've told this a number of times here, if you bear with me. Uh, one of the reasons you don't have sex outside of marriage at a Bible college is it might lead to dancing. <laughs> now, you can see the logic, of course, you can see the logic, and it used to really bug me, this logic, this fence within a fence within a fence. It used to really irritate me. Pharisees, I would call these people, which is a, a church sl- a slander for somebody who's kind of religious and hung up on these rules. But then I became a parent, and honestly, I'm not going to lie, as a parent, I start to get it, right? Like, you make a rule, and then your kid kind of slides around the rule. You're like, man, apparently we have to build a fence to keep them from that fence. It's not so straightforward, but I think the problem is, if you're not careful, you totally lose the big picture, don't you? These rules within these rules, these fences, they pollute the whole operation. Like, think about it. What's a Bible college trying to do? It's trying to equip people to help human beings connect to God. Like my job, as I graduated from that college, my whole job is to help people understand that God is a, is a God of freedom and love and peace and, a, and, and the reason you live a certain way or don't live a certain way is so you can be fully alive and free. But if you're not careful, you take your eyes off the fundamentals, off the bedrock, off the foundation of what it's all about and you suddenly are shrinking it down to whether you can hang up a concert poster or not. Matthew chapter 15. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? By the way, I should warn you, Jesus is feisty this whole chapter. He is just, he is in a mood, this whole chapter. Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father and mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me as a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Look, I'm not going to get into that. It's very much inside baseball between Jesus and the religious establishment. For those of you who want to Google it, it's called Corbin, uh, named after our wonderful staff member, I suppose. And you can Google that on your own and learn way more than you'd ever want to learn about the nuance of how to honor God and your father and mother, and also in that how to bypass that and still keep all your stuff. That's for another day. But Jesus is feisty. You hypocrites, he said. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him. Like, this is how feisty Jesus is. He takes a private conversation, and then he decides to publicly shame the Pharisees. Hey, you guys doing anything? Why don't you, like, it says right there, Jesus called the crowd. Why don't you come over? This is going to be really good. And he gets a crowd, and then he speaks to the crowd about the Pharisees. Listen and understand, he says, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth That's what makes him unclean. 
the Pharisees, for those of you who are not familiar with this, they're just the religious leaders of the day. They were super uptight. They, they're always the bad guys in the New Testament, which is a little unfortunate because in many ways, they were much like my, the Bible college administrators, they were just trying to do the best they could to try to help people connect with God. That's really what their heart was. But somewhere they just completely lost the plot. They'd lost the fundamentals about freedom and peace and love. And they got so hung up on the particulars and they had their own tradition. If you go back and look at this passage, Matthew points out they weren't quoting scripture to Jesus at all. They were quoting from their own fence within the fence, rules within the rules. Just a little aside, 90% of the rules that the Pharisees added to the Bible, 90% of them were all about how to stay pure how to stay pure. I'll quote one of them for you from Rabbi Hosea. It's on the screen, and I'm going to quote it in the uh, Old English. He sinneth as much who eateth with unwashen hands as he that lieth with a harlot. I liked it. That's fine. You can try it later, maybe at work. You could try that at work and see how that goes. I thought that was good. Uh, Rabbi Hosea is saying that if you don't wash your hands, it's like sleeping with a prostitute. That'll preach. It's not bad, that's, a, that's an overreaction. So they're obsessed with how to stay pure. Their whole way of staying pure was keep away from sick and sinful people, keep away, keep away, sick and sinful people. The problem is Jesus' whole way was stay close to sick and sinful people, stay close to them. How else are you gonna spread the freedom and the love and the peace of God? How else are you gonna spread purity to people who are unpure, impure, unless you get close to them. Just an aside, this isn't really the point of today, but I think it's something that hopefully will fester with all of us and be a gut check for those of us who call discovery home. It's that Jesus reversed the infection transfer. That's one of the miracles of Jesus. The impure became pure through Christ, not the other way around. It used to be in the Old Testament that we would stay away from sinful people, sick people, lepers, and so on. So we would stay pure. Also, 1990s youth ministry was built on that whole model. (laughs) Bad company corrupts good character, we kept saying. And that's true, sure. But what's also true, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That's true, too. And so we see Jesus putting hands on lepers and he does not catch their leprosy, they catch his healing. We see Jesus hanging out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. And then you see Jesus again and again all through the Bible saying, you know what, the the kingdom of heaven is actually closer than you think. These people getting closer to God, amazing. And this is one of the reasons he was so ticked off at the Pharisees. This is why Jesus is in a mood for this whole chapter because this is really the heart of our church because Jesus is saying, and, and we coin it this way, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to us, we can be pure. Not because of our rule keeping, but because of Christ. We can be whole, we can be healed. Also, as an aside, this isn't also the heart of the message, but I'd be, uh, I should bring it up. Jesus uses a bit of rabbinical jujitsu here, and he does this a lot, by the way, when he's asked a direct question. Uh, when I'm asked a direct question, I feel compelled to answer. When Jesus is asked a direct question, most of the time, let's see, Jesus was asked 183 direct questions, and he answered directly twice, so... 
181 out of 183 times, he either doesn't answer or he does what the Phar- he does to the Pharisees, just answers a question with a question. It's a quality Jesus Duke tip. When you don't want to answer a direct question, just reply with a question. Now, the other tool Jesus uses, I'm not sure I'd recommend for the rest of us, is he doubles down and steps on their necks. Now, we're 15 chapters into the story at this point. This conversation is obviously part of an ongoing fight. Jesus isn't naturally a highly reactive person. The Pharisees have stepped on his last nerve, and they are doing his number one pet peeve, They are putting unnecessary obstacles between human beings and God. They're adding rules upon rules upon rules, and they're making it harder, not easier, to connect with God. So I'll just say, particularly for those of you who may be newer to this church, or maybe you're wondering if this might be your church home and you're trying other churches, I would just say a couple of things. Beware of faith that is built on petty arguments. Beware people representing God by focusing on the non-essentials. This is also known nowadays as Christian Twitter. What are the Pharisees actually for? We know what they're against. What are they for? What are they doing to help break down obstacles so people can find God? It's hard to tell in the Bible because they were against so much. If someone's always arguing, always pointing out how others are wrong, Maybe find another faith teacher or another faith community. And Jesus actually gives us some helpful guidance on what to do with these sorts of religious leaders as our story picks up in verse 12. I love, first of all, the disciples. And the disciples came to him and they asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Well, Jesus is like, well, it did cross my mind. I mean, I did call them hypocrites. I mean, we're not to the whitewashed tombs part yet. That's coming, but... I mean, I did say, you know, their hearts are far from God. Of course, Jesus knew they were offended. And he replied, and it's pretty bold language. He replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them their blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into the pit. I have fallen into the trap as a some sort of religious leader of trying to reason with these kinds of people and that was my mistake. I should have just trusted the words of Jesus. Jesus is like, look, it's all gonna shake out in the end. Just leave them, they're blind. Then Peter, verse 15, explain the parable to us, Peter says. (laughs) I told you Jesus was in a mood. Are you so dull, Jesus asked them, Like, really, Jesus? Come on. Like, what happened to the let the little children come to me, Jesus? Where's that Jesus? Where's Will Ferrell's Jesus with the golden fleece diapers? That Jesus is nowhere to be found here. Are you so dull? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, these rules within the rules within the rules, abolish all of them. And just work on your heart. Because if your heart is good, then good things will come out and nothing going in can pollute a good heart. Leaving that place, 
Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. One sentence, 50 miles. Man, sometimes these Bible writers, they know how to move a plot story along. 50 mile journey, Jesus is now well outside the realm of Jewish community and Jerusalem. He is now in the non-Jewish community and that's important for what's coming up. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman, that's obviously a non-Jewish woman, from that vicinity, from that, that's her hometown, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Okay, it's gonna be all right, everybody. He had a rough start, and then he was a bit pesky with the disciples. He kind of mocked them, but this is Jesus' wheelhouse. A, a woman, a foreigner, someone in need. Now we're getting the Jesus, like the mercy Jesus, right? The Jesus we all love the most. Everything's gonna be okay, here we go. Uh, verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out to us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. He didn't, he ignored the woman. He doesn't even acknowledge her presence. He's talking to the disciples. The disciples ignored the woman. They're just basically saying, can you like send her off because she's annoying us? And Jesus doesn't correct his disciples and he doesn't address the woman. They're having a meeting about the woman in front of the woman. Have you ever been in a room where people are having a meeting and you're the topic and you're in the room and you're like, I'm right here. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Apparently, Jesus' mood is continuing. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. Okay, here we go. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Whoa. Okay. Enough with the testiness. Like, what does he need to do? Does he need to count to ten? Does he need to go to his happy place? Is someone gonna break through to this guy and find a different tone in Jesus? Okay, now on first blush, it does in fact appear that first of all, Jesus is refusing to acknowledge someone because they're not his preferred race. Some of you, particularly those of you raised in church, maybe you've studied the Bible a lot, for some of you, you're like, I think I'll take the pulpit now, Steve, because actually Mark and Luke, the other gospel writers, they give us insight into Jesus. Like this story is in Mark and Luke and you can read it on your own time. It's a great story. But in Mark and Luke, Jesus has a completely different tone. He's playful. It's almost like he's gently inviting the woman toward him by teasing her, not Matthew. In Matthew, the clear reading of scripture is Jesus is annoyed, irritable, dismissive. Okay, we can soften it a little bit. This is just one little piece. If you jump into the Greek, which, which is what the New Testament was written in, which is something I barely know much about. I studied it so long ago, I barely remember it, but I do know how to Google. Uh, and the, the word dog there is more playful. It's more like a little puppy but you can't get away from the fact that he's calling her a dog. She asks, 
that he heal her daughter. She's desperate. And he says, no, no, I only help Israelites. You're the wrong race. And she's like, yeah, but like, you can do me something. And he's like, no, I would never take from Israel and just toss it to a dog. And then she comes back at him again. Yes, Lord, she said. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Like, I don't need a whole loaf of bread. I just need a couple of crumbs. Don't you, don't you have a couple of crumbs? This woman is desperate enough to ignore the rude behavior of this rabbi to advocate for her daughter. I don't know much about this woman. Here's what I know. When your child is ill, you have no problem making a scene to get help. When my oldest son Bryson was four, Lisa was out of the house, which probably explains why he got into the laundry detergent while I wasn't watching. And for some reason, it was the powder and he got it into his eye. And he came running to me just screaming. And so I'm feeling guilty as a dad because I wasn't paying attention to my son. And I flushed his eye out with water and it was really red and I could see the laundry crystals in there. And he was screaming at the top of his lungs and I was like, my child's gonna go blind. So I get him in the car and we speed to the hospital and I go to the emergency room and I said, please, please, could you please help my son? I'm afraid that he's gonna lose his eye. He's got laundry detergent. I brought the detergent with me so they could see what it was. And they put me in a waiting room and they told me to fill out a form and stand in line. Now, I used to be a hospital chaplain. I know how to get help in an emergency room. The best thing to do is tell them that your arm is tingling. You'll get in right away. <laughs> My arm's tingling. Oh, right back here, sir. Can't really do that with a four-year-old. Very unlikely that a four-year-old's gonna have a heart attack. So there we are in the room. Bryson's screaming and it's like, I don't know how long went by, I really don't. It felt like about 30 minutes. It was probably about 90 seconds. He's screaming, I'm afraid he's gonna go blind. I cannot get the nurses to take me seriously. So I walked Bryson out, by the way, I'm not proud of this, but I walked him out to the nurse's station and left him there and I just said, hey, there's all kinds of fun stuff in the nurse's station, why don't you help yourself? Just push some buttons and find some things. And then I walked back into the waiting room and so Bryson is now an unattended toddler in open emergency room in the nurse's station. About two minutes later, a very angry nurse is dragging my son into the room. I was just in the room waiting, like this. And she's angry at me. Sir, you must get your child under control. And I'm angry at her. Ma'am, I need you to look at my son's eye or I'm gonna lose it. We're both angry at each other. She leaves, does not attend to him. So I just said, let's go visiting patients, Bryson. And I let him walk up and down the emergency room and just there's curtains there and we open curtains and we wave at people. And basically I caused an absolute scene until they got fed up and they treated my son. Now, I'm not saying I was right in this situation and I'm not using myself as a hero in this story. All I'm saying is when you're a parent and your child's suffering, Desperation will make you do anything to get the attention of anyone when you know that they can help. And this woman, she knew Jesus can help my daughter. Now, why did he act this way? Honestly, I don't know. I've been studying this passage for the last couple of weeks and none of us have the insight into what was going on with Jesus. Maybe he didn't want to. Maybe he was in an irritable mood because of the Pharisees. Maybe his silence was something else. Maybe he was setting up a lesson for everyone's good. Matthew doesn't really record what Mark and Luke show us 
that Jesus might have been playful here and extracting something deeper out of this. All I know is a desperate woman did what she had to do to get the person who could help her to help her. Isn't that the plight that many of us find ourselves in? Do you have someone you love right now who is suffering or struggling? and you're fretting, and you're praying, and you're researching, and you're trying to figure out what to do. And surely, isn't part of your faith struggle, particularly those of us who are followers of Christ in this room, isn't part of your faith struggle that you know God can wipe it all away? In fact, most of the people that make it to my prayer list are kind of in that category of only God. You know what I'm talking about? Only God can do something. And how much of our faith struggle is simply down to that God can, but doesn't always? Like, have you ever been in that situation? Maybe it's your life or maybe the life of a loved one, and you've even said to God, God, you can heal this person. It's no sweat off your back. You can do it. You can click your fingers and healing. They're gone. But God doesn't always. Or maybe another way to say it is God doesn't enough. Yes, I believe God heals. Yes, I've witnessed the healing of God. I just would like one more, please, or 10 more, please. And, and I'll just say, if you're in that boat, there's nothing wrong with that. If you are pleading with God, the only being in the universe that can actually do something, and you're pleading with that God, it's complicated, isn't it? Because God can And so our faith is severely tested at times because we profoundly believe in a God who heals but our loved ones stay suffering. This story reminds me of a parable that Jesus told about a widow who needed justice. She was being bullied. Somebody with power was wielding their power against her and she was being bullied and her neighbor was a judge and she needed an advocate to help her with this bully, someone who was taking advantage of her, and her neighbor was a judge. He had the power to protect her with the law. The problem is he was completely indifferent. He didn't care. It didn't matter what was in his heart. She didn't need him to care. She just needed him to hit that gavel and use his power to protect her. So because he was her neighbor, this is a story of Jesus. You can read this. It's one of his more famous parables. She bugged him and bugged him and bugged him all times of the day and night. When he was in bed, she would knock on his door like after hours. She didn't make an appointment with the judge down at the courthouse. She waited till he was at home in his pajamas in bed and she knocked and knocked and knocked and knocked. And in Jesus' story, the judge is muttering to himself in bed that that blasted widow that judge is saying, she never leaves me alone, but I'm not going to get up because I don't reward that kind of behavior. And she's just knocking and knocking and knocking. Why? because she has nowhere else to go and she has nothing to lose. And Jesus says that judge will get out of bed, not because he cares, not because he wants to, but just to stop the knocking, just so he can get a good night's sleep. And he'll get out of bed and say, what do you want? And the woman's like, this guy is bullying me and you can do something about it and I ain't leaving until you do something about it. And the judge is like, fine, and writes a writ and protects the woman and goes back to bed and that's the parable. It's an odd story because as Jesus Jesus tells it, we are the desperate widow and God 
is sort of the judge who doesn't care, but will get out of bed if we just bug him enough. It used to be when I first started preaching, I'd get really worn out on a Sunday afternoon and I'd need a Sunday nap. This is when my kids were all really young. My son Andrew, who played guitar today in the band, uh, Andrew is a raging extrovert. He's the most extroverted in all the Cuss family and he loves to spend time with people. So when he was very, very young, four or five years old, nap time on Sunday was brutal for him because he'd get bored. He wanted me to wake up and play. Now, I loved playing with Andrew. It was a great delight for me, but I loved my nap as well. And to be honest, I needed my nap. And one time I woke up from my nap to the sound of a door opening and closing again and again, just outside my bedroom door. There's a bathroom right outside my bedroom door in the hallway. And someone was standing outside the bathroom, just opening and closing that hallway door again and again and again. It was really loud, got me up, it woke me up, and I went to see what was going on. And there's little Andrew methodically opening and closing and opening and closing this squeaky door. And he saw me up and acted surprised. Oh, you're up, he says. Do you want to play? <laughs> In that moment, I wasn't wild about it, I'll be honest. But after a few minutes of play, I was really glad he got me up. Is God an indifferent judge? Is God the God who prefers the afternoon nap over being with us? Is God the God that won't heal some woman's desperate daughter because she's the wrong race or he's irritable? No, Jesus says. At the end of that parable with the widow and the judge, Jesus makes a really important point. He says, if this indifferent judge will get out of bed to help, how much more, Jesus says, will your heavenly Father who loves you happily come to you I'm not quite sure what Jesus' disposition was to this woman. What I know is that Jesus all through his life likes to remind us that God is a how much more kind of God. That if our hearts love to help people when they're in need, how much more does God love to help those when the, they are in need? If you, Jesus says, who love your children, love to give good gifts to your children, how much more, Jesus says, does God love to lavish you with gifts? So keep knocking. Get in front of God. Cajole God if you have to. That's what the Canaanite woman did. The story is fascinating to me. She's the only foreigner in the meeting. She's the only non-Jewish person in the room. She's the only woman. She's an outsider. Jesus calls attention to her otherness, and he seems to be intentionally dismissive, and yet she stands her ground. And she says, yep, I don't belong here. I don't belong with you, but I need you. And you can do for me what I cannot do for myself. You're the only one who can do what my daughter needs. Your reputation is you're a healer and you're compassionate. And I don't know what's going on with you right now, but you're going to help me and I ain't leaving until you do. There's a remarkable gospel song by Jennifer Hudson. And the title of the song is, And I'm Telling You, I'm Not Going. 
That's the title of the song. I'd encourage anyone to listen to it. Jennifer Hudson, if you're not familiar with her, has a voice that reminds all of us, like Aretha Franklin. When she sings it, you believe it. In the song, she's in a rough spot with her man, and he's thinking about storming out of there and ending the relationship. He's threatening her that this is the end, and she's realized that their fight has gone maybe to a stage that might be terminal, and she's suddenly afraid that she's gonna lose the man she loves. And the song culminates with a repeated line, I'm staying, I'm staying, I'm staying. (laughs) And then she says, and you're gonna love me. That's what this woman does with Jesus. Jesus clearly likes this kind of character in a person. Someone made a meme out of it. The Canaanite woman and Jesus. I know it has a little political overtone. I wrestled with whether to share it, but it's funny. So if you just take it in the jest of the meme. Nevertheless, she persisted. There it is. I can tell by the room that I found that much funnier than you guys did. (laughs) I think this encounter is more about woman's persistence than it is about Jesus' countenance. I think that's the point of the story. Jesus' countenance is neither here nor there. Maybe Jesus was grumpy with the Pharisees and the woman's like, look, I've caught you on a bad day, but I'm going to cajole you into a different mood. I I don't know. What I know is what happened next. Then Jesus answered, woman... You have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Let's have Daniel and the band come out as we share what happened after what happened next. So what happened next, but then what happened next? Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee And then he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and great crowds came to him, bringing the lame and the blind and the crippled, the mute and many others and laid them at his feet and he healed them all. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled made well and the lame walking and the blind seeing and they praised the God of Israel. A flood of miracles for everyone in the region, outside of Israel, foreigners healed, all kinds of scraps falling off the Jewish table for these dogs. Did this woman unlock healing from Jesus to others? Did her boldness, did her brashness to cajole Jesus into action give him the lift he needed to go on a healing spree? The contrast between this Canaanite woman and those religious Pharisees is striking. They both confronted Jesus, but one folded like a cheap suit and the other went all in. What was the difference? The Pharisees had nothing to stand on because they were standing on themselves. And when things got tough, their feet were firmly planted in midair. There was no ground, there was no substance to what they were standing on. So many people in our world stand on themselves. They are their own authority, their own source of what is right and wrong. And when life shows up, they've got nothing. This woman wasn't standing at all. She was kneeling, kneeling on bedrock that God is God and God can do what no one else can do. We have a God who loves us, who is involved in our lives, who is present in our suffering. We have a suffering servant for a God, all-powerful, yes, all-knowing, yes, always with us, yes. 
And also, yes, the quandary that God can but doesn't always. But we still need reminding that God can and does come to us in our grief. God with us in our suffering and our trial. So keep knocking, keep pestering, keep cajoling, kneel before him and have mercy on us, Lord Jesus. Let's sing.